Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation of your grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we uh, study and learn of his mighty deeds of redemption and humility and love, that we would be moved again to faith and love in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. Today we'll be looking again at chapter 8, chapter 8 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, of Christ the Mediator. We began looking at that, and if you're looking in the hymnal, that's page 853. We're looking at the work of the Mediator of the Covenant of Grace, by whom Uh, The elect is saved by whom uh, sinners, uh, us, are brought to, out of sin and misery, into salvation by a Redeemer. Last week we looked at uh, the the person of Christ and his office, that he is God, and because he has been appointed the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king of God's people, the those who would be redeemed, he also in time became man and uh, did so that he might fulfill that office and save us. And so he continues to be God and man, two natures that uh, continue to maintain their integrity as uh, divine and human, and yet one person that acts by both natures uh, for our salvation. So we looked at paragraphs 1, 2, and I believe 7. So I want to try to cover the rest of those uh, uh, paragraphs in this chapter today. Uh, Redemption accomplished and applied by Christ. Let's begin with paragraph 3. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that, being holy, harmless, and undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandments to execute the same. It is the Son of God uh, who became man, who is the Lord Jesus, who purchased redemption, but we'll find that um, God in his triune nature, all three persons are at work for the redemption of mankind, and even in the work of Christ, that uh, he is called to this office uh, by the Father, and that he is anointed by the Holy Spirit, um, and thus not only called, but fully uh, prepared for the work at hand. Uh, the Father called the Son to be the, to the office of mediator and surety, uh, surety of the covenant that, to guarantee uh, our salvation. And uh, we find that in Hebrews, uh, for example, Hebrews seven 
22 that he's the, the mediator and the guarantor of the new covenant. Um, it also speaks of how priests, for example, didn't just get to call themselves priests, but they were called to that office, and, and Christ had a legitimate calling, as we find in Psalm 110, uh, by an oath that you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever. Uh, the Father put all power and judgment into the hand of the Son and gave him commandment to execute the same. And again, uh, the Son already had all power by virtue of being God, but it is uh, in this office of mediator uh, for this particular purpose that he is uh, entrusted with this, uh, with this mission. And the Father also determined to thoroughly furnish him to execute this office by the Holy Spirit. And especially in mind here is his human nature, his human nature thus united to the divine, um, is equipped and um, by being anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, it's easy to neglect the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ because of, we know that as Scripture teaches, he's also God himself, uh, but the whole, uh, Scripture also speaks of him uh, being anointed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming and resting upon him, and doing work by the Holy Spirit. Um, the incarnate Lord Jesus was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit. His human nature was, uh, sorry, the messianic anointing was publicly manifested at his baptism. Uh, John 1, for example, John the Baptist testifies that he saw the Spirit descend upon the Lord and remain upon him, indicating that this was the Christ and the one who would also baptize with the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, he worked miracles. Um, Acts 10, I have it written here, Acts 10, 38, uh, in preaching, Peter preaching about Jesus, he says, you yourselves know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Um, and so the Holy Spirit uh, with power, that power being with the Holy Spirit, um, was testifying to the approval of God that this one was appointed for this work by, by working these things through him. Uh, perhaps even more clearly, we find in Matthew chapter 12 that Jesus cast out demons by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and importantly, it was by the Holy Spirit and not by uh, the prince of demons. That's what the Pharisees were claiming. But in Matthew 12... Uh, he says, but if it is by the Spirit of, so verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Um, and of course, that is the case, not the case that it's the prince of demons, for how could Beelzebul cast out, uh, how could Satan cast out Satan and be divided against himself? No, it's the Holy Spirit by which these things were done. Um, Hebrews speaks of how he Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice by the eternal spirit. And 1 Timothy 3.16 speaks of how he was vindicated by the spirit, probably referring to his resurrection when he was raised by the Father through the spirit, uh, himself uh, as well, being raised from the dead, vindicated, justified, um, having that approval 
that he had fully paid the penalty for our sins, and therefore death had no claim on him, and therefore has no claim on us who are in him. Um, So the Holy Spirit has an important work in the ministry of Christ as our mediator. Let's go on to section 4 then, which speaks about that work that he did. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it, endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died, was buried, and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. And so this um, familiar list here that we'll find in uh, the creeds as well, that for us and for our salvation, you know, to accomplish the work of this office, he uh, humbled himself uh, and was exalted. Uh, what do we usually consider his humiliation, uh, the, the estate of his humiliation, what he did? He was born, right, as a man. Uh, it was a step down in a low condition. What else was part of his work of, or his estate of humiliation, the works he did in that condition? Right, right. Uh, and, and remaining under the power of death for a time. So he uh, was born in a low condition, made under the law, subject to the law, fulfilling that law, um, and he suffered the miseries of this life. He uh, was incarnate in a mortal condition uh, with human infirmities, though not with human sin. And then he also uh, endured torment in his soul and body, was crucified, died, was buried, and remained under the power of death for a time. Uh, This is his uh, state of humiliation, where he suffered for uh, our sake, uh, lived and died for our salvation. But then there's also his estate of exaltation. Uh, And what is part of, uh, what work does he do in his exaltation? Rising again from the dead on the third day. Ascending to heaven and sitting at the right hand of God. Right? Yes. Uh, Forty days later, ascending to heaven. And currently, he is there in heaven, sitting, not just sitting, but enthroned. That's the idea of of sitting there um, with power, making intercession for us. And then, one more thing. Coming to judge the world. Yes, with glory. coming back to earth to call forth the dead, to gather all people, to judge uh, the world uh, at the last day. And so this is the work that he does um, for the sake of the people he was given to save, um, for sinners, for our salvation. And he undertook this office most willingly. 
Uh, it's not like the father was you know, just forcing him to do it, and he didn't want to do it, and he you know, dragged his foot the whole time and, and just, you know, had no choice in the matter. Um, now, he, he did obey the will of the father. This was uh, a, a charge given unto him. But he also did so out of love for sinners, that he certainly, uh, this was difficult. We have him struggling in the garden as he uh, submits to the Father, but uh, fully experiencing the, the weight of this matter. Uh, but he did so in love, as uh, Ephesians 5 says, that we ought to walk in love even as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So the Father loves us sending the Son. The Son also loves us in doing this work and undertook it most willingly. Um, it also mentions here he endured grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body. Uh, why would it make sure to indicate both of those? Or what's the significance of that? Or what does that even mean? Well, the soul is also human. Right, so, so both of them are, are as, as a man. Um, God himself cannot suffer, um, but he became man so that he could suffer. And uh, it, it's in his whole person uh, he suffered. And not only did he have the normal suffering of death, like anyone would die, but he was also bearing iniquity, and that weight was laid upon him, and that, that justice of God was being satisfied by his death. Uh, and so uh, we find that expressed not only in physical agony through the, the, the torment and torture and, and crucifixion and, and agonizing death, but also in his soul. And um, probably the main reason it's put here is because scripture speaks of it. Uh, in Matthew 26, <clears throat> Matthew 26, 37 through 38, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Uh, his, his soul, his human affections and, and uh, the inner life was sorrowful even to death. We find uh, this in, on the cross itself in verse, chapter 27, verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sambachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Going to Luke, we find it back in the garden that this agony was such that, as verse 44 of chapter 22 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And so even before the scourge and the uh, mockery and the uh, crucifixion, he was already experiencing the, the weight and the fear and the, uh, uh, the, the judgment that was upon him, not for his own sins, but uh, for our sake. 
And so uh, Calvin uh, put it this way, not only was the body of Christ given up as the price of redemption, but that there was a greater and more excellent price that he bore in his soul the tortures of condemned and ruined man. And so in body and soul, he suffered for man's sin. The iniquity of us was laid on him. Then he died. Uh, he, he suffered on the cross. He was crucified. He died. Uh, he was buried. And he remained under the power of death for a time. He was, for a time, under the dominion of death. Uh, this is what the uh, larger catechism describes uh, as the meaning of that phrase in the Apostles' Creed, um, that he descended into hell or, or uh, to the place of the dead, uh, to, to Hades, that he was uh, not abandoned there, he was brought out from there, but for a time that he was uh, under the power of death and in the state of the dead. But death was not able to hold him. Uh, the pangs of death were loosed, as Peter proclaimed on Pentecost. Um, having suffered for sins and paid them fully, uh, death had no claim, and he was raised on the third day in the, with the same body in which he suffered. Uh, this tomb was empty. It was a very literal historical resurrection from the dead, <clears throat> a proof of his claims and a vindication of all those who are in him. Then Acts 1 uh, speaks of how with that same body he visibly ascended into the heavens uh, 40 days after his resurrection. Uh, then Scripture speaks of how he's enthroned in heaven at the right hand, making intercession for us. As Psalm 110 had prophesied, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies um, your footstool. And that is where he is now, to our great benefit, revealing the will of God for our salvation, uh, subduing us to himself, applying that work of redemption, preserving and protecting us, interceding on our behalf, uh, and then he shall come. At the end of the world, um, or the end of the age, uh, the, the phrase, for example, in the creed can be translated world or age. The idea is that at the end of this, this age, as opposed to the age to come, at the end of this order of things, uh, he will come on the last day to judge men and angels. And we find that testified abundantly uh, in Scripture. Acts 1, the angels say you shall, he shall come in the same manner in which he has left, that is, you know, bodily, visibly, physic- uh, physically, physically. Uh, Acts 17, Paul says to the Athenians, God has a appointed a day on which he will judge the world by a man he has appointed, and he's designated him by raising him from the dead. Um, and so we look to that day with great expectation and, and hope, because that would be a, a day of acquittal and inheritance and blessing for all those who have waited in faith. <clears throat> Any questions so far before we go to the next paragraph? Let's go to section five. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father had given unto him.
And so by his perfect obedience, you know, throughout his life, uh, and part of his obedience was going as a sacrifice, even unto death. And then through that sacrifice of himself for our sins, uh, so through all of that, Jesus has fully satisfied the justice of his Father. Um, It's not that God simply gave a testimony for how much he hated sin, or not simply that Christ gave us an example of how much he loved us. Um, Those things are true as well. But he also satisfied the justice of God uh, so that our sins might be forgiven, not simply ignored. Justice is still done. God can still be just and the justifier, as Romans 3 says, of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, And so, justice is satisfied. And this paragraph also notes that by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, Jesus purchased reconciliation, but not only that, an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for the elect. It's not like Jesus brought you back to, uh, to a neutral state, and now you have to, by your works, merit eternal life, uh, but rather by his death, he, he accomplished your full redemption and inheritance and future and glory. Uh, that he did so uh, by his obedience, by the sacrifice of himself, he has purchased this redemption. So as Ephesians 1.11 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Uh, that we have a possession that is everlasting and unfading, uh, that is kept for us in heaven and already have a guarantee of it, a, a, a down payment of it, in the Holy Spirit, which he acquired for us and is sent to us um, from heaven. And so, for his obedience and his sacrifice, Christ was declared righteous. He rose from the tomb as having personally kept the law, that he uh, was not faulted for anything that he had done, and then all the iniquity that was imputed to him had been satisfied by his sacrifice, and so he was declared righteous. He was raised from the dead, and then he was raised from the dead for our justification and for our sake. And he, was also, he also, as a consequence, received a kingdom and a glory. And it was exalted to the Father's right hand, seated in the heavenly places. And guess what? That means that all those who are connected with him also are co-heirs with him, that receive all the rewards that Christ received and earned by his work, that we too will have glory and being exalted and being with God forever. So there is an inheritance which he shares with the elect uh, that we have in him. Uh, section 6 speaks of how this was accomplished at a particular time, but it's effectual for the saints even before that time as well as afterwards. So in 6 it says, Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation... Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices, wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same forever. So, relatively simple point, but uh, still important and somewhat mysterious, that the work of redemption took place when Christ became man and accomplished his work. 
Um, if that had not happened, no one would have been saved from sin. But the virtue, or that is the power, or the efficacy and the benefits of this work was communicated to all the elect in all ages. Uh, so it's not like the Old Testament saints first had to go to hell, and then when Christ accomplished it, then they get to heaven, uh, but rather that they were forgiven, that they were regenerated, that, that they had these benefits of Christ uh, even in the Old Testament. Um, finally, paragraph 8. <clears throat> what is Christ doing right now? That's the focus of the last paragraph here. He's done things for us. He will do things. What's he doing now for us as prophet, priest, and king? To all those for whom Christ has purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey, and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. So Christ, uh, notice, has a people in mind, both with his dying and with his work today, that the Father gave him a people to save. Uh, his, His work certainly is... Um, instant, infinitely uh, uh, worth that, it, that the, the fact that some people are not saved is not because his sacrifice was not enough or not that it was not freely offered, but rather because uh, they rejected the gift. And the fact that some people are saved is because he had certain people in mind when he died, that he was given a people And so he redeemed them by his death. And then he also doesn't just leave it there. He effectually applies it to that people. And that is what he is doing now. Uh, He effectually applies and communicates the same. Communicate not simply like telling you about it, but sharing it with you, giving, putting it into your possession. Uh, Christ is no good to you unless you are united to him, uh, unless there is faith in these things in his work. And so as a priest... He is currently making intercession for you. Uh, He is praying for you. Uh, He is interceding as our high priest so that we can approach God with confidence. And because he intercedes for us, because he prays for us, our persons are acceptable to God and even our imperfect but sincere good works are acceptable to God that we might serve him in a way that is pleasing to him. As a prophet, he reveals unto his elect, by the word, in the word, in the word too. So he is he himself preaching through the word that has been delivered to the saints. Uh, Ephesians speaks of how he preached peace to those who were near and peace to those who are far off. Even to the Gentiles, Christ is preaching through the proclamation of his word uh, to the extent that it is faithfully uh, proclaimed. And he effectually persuades them by the spirit to believe and obey that word. And then as king, he subdues a people to himself that they are made willing by his power, as Psalm 110 says. Uh, He is governing their hearts by his word and spirit. And he also overcomes and restrains uh, their enemies, uh, those who seek their uh, destruction uh, by his almighty power and wisdom in ways that 
are in accord with his wisdom. Uh, It's not always ways that we expect. It's not always even in the same ways. But he is watching over his church. And I think one of the best examples of this protection of his church is in Revelation 2 and 3, where the church is threatened by uh, persecutors from the outside, by the the synagogues of Satan who are uh, slandering them, or by false teachers within the church, um, that Jesus is watching over them. He will be with them so that they might remain steadfast. He calls them to repent, repent, or I will wage war with you with the sword of my mouth and lay them on the sickbed, and he will defend his church. Uh, He is a king to rule and defend it, uh, even as he then also chastises his his people, trains them, teaches them, rewards them uh, as a king. Uh, He is our king, and he watches over his church to grow it, to uh, protect it. And that is uh, chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. Uh, Any questions uh, before we bring this to a close? Next week, we'll look at chapter 9, which is of free will, a shorter chapter, so I'll plan to cover it in one lesson. Uh, But looking at uh, man's will and how that Uh, is affected by sin and redemption. Uh, So we'll look at of free will next week. Uh, Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and for the Savior that you have sent, uh, who freely and with love uh, gave himself for us, that we might uh, live in him and live for him who has loved us. We pray that you would Uh, foster in us a greater faith and appreciation and love for our Savior and our King, our prophet, our priest, that we might listen to him and take confidence in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.